budgeting, cash flow and investing don't have to be scary words. The Money Bites podcast is here to help you learn more and take control of your personal finances. The Money Bites podcast is not a financial advisor. This podcast is made for entertainment and educational purposes only. All information shared is of a general nature and does not take into account your personal situation. You should consider whether the information is appropriate for your needs and where appropriate, seek professional advice from a financial advisor. For more information, please check out wemoney.com.au slash disclaimer. Hello, you're tuned in to Money Bites, a podcast presented by We Money to help you on your journey to financial wellness. I'm your host, Blaze, your resident spendaholic. And I'm Dan, your resident finance expert. This week on Money Bites, dumpster diving. We're going to meet somebody who saves their money on groceries in a very out of the box way. And the First Homeowners Grant, not to be confused with the First Home Loan Deposit Scheme, which we discussed on last episode. And we're launching a mini-series on budget breakdowns, this week taking a look at the 50-20-30 technique. Shall we get into it, Dan? Let's do it, Blaze. So, Dan, do you use a budget? I do, Blaze. I have been on such a journey with budgeting. I've tried almost every single conceivable method to go about doing my budgeting. I think I'm still trying to master it myself. But at present, I think we're doing a good thing here at WeMoney in terms of understanding how we might be able to track that a bit better. But we're still on a journey. How about you? Uh, oh, I've tried budgeting. Do you know what, Dan? I look at budgeting like diets. I realize <laughs> that there's something wrong in my life. And then I go, okay, I should implement some sort of change to fix this, whether it be losing weight or becoming fitter or taking control of my finances. And I try it for a while and then I usually fall off the bandwagon. So for me, budgets are like diets because they they seem restrictive, right? But they're there to help you achieve something. Absolutely, Blaze. And you know what? You are not alone. The latest research in behavioral psychology suggests that Keeping a budget is just exactly like keeping a a diet or any type of commitment that you want to build a habit with. And I'm really interested about today's episode and how we might be able to explore some options on really uh, helping us stick to budgets and something that's really simple and easy to use, but more importantly, that develops a long-term sustainable habit. Yeah, great. So we know that having a budget is a really crucial step to financial wellness and getting your finances under control which is why we thought over the next few weeks that we'd take a look at a few of the most popular ways of budgeting in a mini budget breakdown series. So each episode, we'll take a look at one budget style, the history of it, how to do it, and how to figure out if it's right for you. This week, we'll be looking at the 50-30-20 rule. Sounds exciting, Blaze. Before we get into it, I want to know quickly, what is a benefit of using a budget? Blaze, the benefit of using a budget is it teaches us a sense of discipline on really uncovering where our money is going and more importantly, how do we help either restrain spending or control spending in order to achieve our goals. We all have goals in our life, be that short-term goals, what we're doing in the next week, in the next month, and more importantly, some of those bigger long-term goals such as buying a home or paying down debt quicker. And a budget can really help us align to those long-term goals that we've got in our lives so we can help achieve those goals sooner, but more importantly, keep us disciplined to ensure that we do uh, hit our long-term objectives. 
Yeah, awesome. All right, so let's take a look at the 50-30-20 rule. Now, this function actually has a very impressive history. It was introduced by Elizabeth Warren, who's actually a US senator now. Before that, she was a law professor throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, specializing in bankruptcy law. Now, Warren published the 50-30-20 rule in her book, All Your Worth, The Ultimate Lifetime Money Plan, back in 2005. The premise of the budget is pretty simple. What you do is you divide up your income after tax into three buckets. So the first bucket, bucket one, will have 50% of your income after tax in it. And that goes towards needs. So that's things like your rent or your mortgage, your electricity bill, healthcare, basic groceries, transport, everything that you need as a human to survive. The second bucket is the 20% bucket. Now, this bucket is where 20% of your income after tax goes towards savings or debt. So this might be, you know, a holiday fund or an emergency fund or savings for retirement. It may be going towards paying off a loan or your credit card debt. But 20% of your income after tax goes into the second bucket. The third and final bucket is your 30% bucket, which is your wants bucket, my personal favorite bucket. (laughs) So this is where you can spend your money on holidays and movie tickets and your Netflix subscription or the more expensive cheese at the supermarket if you're feeling a little bit bougie. You know, the the bucket, the third bucket is for your wants so where you can have more of your fun spending, shall we put it. Blaze, I'm going to stop you there. Did you just say bougie? <laughs> yeah, bougie. What does that the mean? bougie bucket. Bougie, it's like, you know, you're super fancy, super cool. <laughs> It's it's where you where it's your splurge bucket. <laughs> I get it. I get it. like splurging and having the nice things. I'm I'm catching up to the cool kids blows. I think it's for bourgeoisie. Is that right? Oh, uh, I don't know. That sounds like some sort of food. What's bourgeoisie? I think it's a French word for like um, something that's really cool and hip. Oh, well, look, to be honest, I don't know. I've just heard it in rap songs, and so my my using of it probably isn't even correct. But 30% bougie bucket, I'm sticking with it. I'm down. (laughs) All right, so let's take a look at how the 50-30-20 rule would apply practically. So according to the latest release of data by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the average Australian weekly income for someone working full-time is $1,713.90 or 89k a year. So let's assume if you're on this wage, you're earning $1,306 per week after tax. If you were to apply the 50-20-30 rule, your buckets would look a little something like this. Your first bucket for your needs would have $653 in it, which seems pretty reasonable for rent and utilities and all those sort of important needs. Then your second bucket, your 20% bucket, would have $261 in it and 20 cents towards savings or paying off your debt. Your bougie bucket, your third and final bucket, would have $391.80 in it, which on for at first glance, I think that sounds pretty fair and like a pretty easy way to sort out your money. But what are your thoughts, Dan? Blaze, I think there's some pros and some cons. Let's think about the pros first. The thing I really love about the 50-20-30 budget rule is that it's simple and very easy to understand. And more importantly, it's very easy to action. 
three bank accounts, two cards, setting up automatic transfers on payday, and boom, you're done. Uh, it really highlights the importance of allocating your money to certain categories, and you don't need to add up all your expenses, sit down and try to figure out how much lo- your life costs each and every single year. You simply divvy it up and spend within your means. I think this is really, really the, the benefit of this type of budget because it reduces the cognitive load to understand how you can maximize uh, keeping within your budget and then also achieving some of your goals. So I really like it. What are the cons? Well, maybe not achievable depending on your wage. For example, if you're a person that is really living week to week and living uh, quite tightly in terms of meeting your minimum expenses, then this budget may not be a reasonable approach if, you, if you're if you really living on the scent of an oily rag. Blaze, there's also some subjectivity. You have to decide for yourself on what is a need and what is a want. For example, are you going to buy home brand cheese? Or do you think your minimum expectation? Never. <laughs> Never the home brand cheese. Totally. Or is, are you going to buy mainland or something a bit more fancier? So I think that additional cognitive step where you're going to decide and, and maybe fall into one of those uh, traps when you're in the supermarket aisles, should I buy the less expensive cheese or the more expensive cheese? That adds to some complexity. Uh, it allocates a lot of your- Dan, can I just stop you there? Because you just said mainland cheese as a more fancy cheese. Now, I don't think, I, I don't have anything against mainland, but if you're inviting me around for a cheese board, I would be very disappointed. <laughs> Blaze, I'm not even going to show you the wrapper, so you won't even you won't be able to even tell what type of cheese I'm giving you. <laughs> well, I'll be keeping that in mind. So, what are some of the other cons for the for this type of budget, Dan? Blaze, some would argue that 30% for discretionary spending is probably a little on the high side. So, if you think about achieving some of your goals again in your life, uh, 30% sounds like a lot of money. So, even just looking at an arbitrary number of say a thousand dollars per week. That's $300 that's going towards things that you can probably live without. So some would argue that this is probably allocating way too much on discretionary spending. It's also not super specific. So it doesn't really tell you outside of the buckets on how you might be able to allocate your budget into more specific categories. It could also be hard to maintain if your income is regular. If you're, say, a casual worker or a freelancer and you've got very lumpy income, it may be very difficult to stick to. And finally, Blaze, it allows for lifestyle creep. What's lifestyle creep? Simply put, when you start to earn more, you start to spend more. So if you're someone that's earning, say, $150,000 each and every single year, your weekly income is roughly going to be about $2,000 after tax. Then if you break down those buckets at 50%, you're looking at about $1,000. At 20%, another $400. And 30%, another $600. So $600 on discretionary spending each and every single pay period. That is a Sounds monster. like a dream. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Imagine all the fun you could be having with that. Blaze. And also $1,000 towards like housing and rent. You'd be living in a penthouse apartment, depending on what city you live in, of course. But I can understand that the bigger your uh, budget, uh, the bigger your income, I should say, the more likely you are to, to spend more than you really necessarily need to to get by. Absolutely, Blaze. And I, I think some would argue, and I tend to agree, is that the $600 in the 30% bucket is probably a little on the high side, particularly if you've got some very aggressive goals in your life that you want to achieve. You're probably going to be uh, better off in allocating that money elsewhere. Yeah, great. So, Dan, what's your final thoughts on the 50 20 30 budget? 
Blaze, a budget is better than no budget. It's a great place to start, particularly if you're just starting getting into understanding your money and understanding where you might be able to allocate it to and get yourself into a habit of saying, right, I know I need to address a money problem in my life or become more disciplined with money. This is a perfect budget to kick off with over the course of the next, say, three to six months and see if it works for you. What do you think, Blaze? Well, so I've actually tried this budget and it worked for me for a while But then I did have the issue of not being able to distinguish my wants from my needs because if I want something, my brain thinks I need it, even though maybe I don't need a fourth fourth pair of flare pants for my costume collection, you know. Um, But I do like that it encourages you to live within your means if you're on a smaller wage. And I do like the 20% savings because for me and for for the lifestyle I live, 20% savings is totally achievable and it also adds up nicely over time to a, to a nice figure. So I think that's really achievable. And, yeah, overall, big fan of the budget and think it's, yeah, I agree with you, it's a good place to start. Absolutely. And, Blaze, the other thing to make mention of is that, especially that last part we talked about, lifestyle creep, and if you're earning a hefty wage, what, what, I, what I've typically noticed, and this is very true for my life, is that, Uh, The older you get and the more income you get, your lifestyle typically adjusts disproportionately to the amount of income that you earn. And and in effect, every time that you get a pay increase, people often wonder, where did that money go to, right? I didn't necessarily save more. My bank account balance is relatively the same. And so that's the thing to really keep an eye on is uh, making sure that your lifestyle doesn't increase as you start getting paid more as your career expands and grows. Be grateful for what you do have and don't you don't have to splurge and spend money on things you don't really need, I guess, is the lesson in that. Beautifully put, Blaze. So, Dan, if I was to ask you, what are your tips on how to save on groceries, what would you say? Blaze, the first ones that come to mind are probably the obvious. Number one, do not go shopping on an empty stomach, right? Make sure you go to the shopping centre fully fully eaten, fully satiated before you jump down those aisles and buy every single thing that you that you see. Uh, the other thing is to do online shopping. So uh, instead of going and thinking about putting all that stuff in that shopping trolley and not knowing how much it costs, by doing online shopping, it saves you that really painful process of understanding how much money you're spending as you go to the shops. So they're the two ones that come to mind, Blaze, but I think you're going to tell me something even more interesting. Well, Dan, those are two really good ideas and something that eating before you go shopping is something I should definitely adopt myself. But I want to know, would you believe me if I told you that our next guest doesn't spend any money on groceries at all? What? No money. Get out. Yeah, I'm being serious. How <laughs> so is it today we have a very <laughs> Well, I'll introduce her and you'll get to find out, Dan. So today we have Freya Garn joining us. Freya, not her real name, lives in the inner west of Sydney. She's 33 years old and works as part of the COVID response team. She's an aspiring stand-up comic and is passionate about sustainability. Freya spends zero dollars on groceries. Yeah, you heard that right, Dan. She spends nothing. And her secret is bin diving. So welcome to Money Bites, Freya. Hi, thank you. (laughs) I love that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Freya. Now, okay, come on, tell us, 
how on earth did you get into this? And well, actually, firstly, what is bin diving? Okay. Um, some people call it dumpster diving if you're from America, but what it really requires is scoping out the um, supermarkets that you shop at normally, um, figuring out where their skip bins are, and then having a look. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So very interesting, definitely unusual technique for grocery shopping or grocery <laughs> diving, I should say. But yeah. Freya, how on earth did you get into this and when did it start for you? Um, it's been something I've been curious about for a while. Um, and then at one point when I worked at a um, very you know, upmarket supermarket, I noticed how much they would throw out into those skip bins. And um, at first I was appalled because I've always grown up, um, you know, finishing my plate of food and being anti-waste. So when I saw all of that being thrown out, I just thought, well, I'm just going to take a little risk and have a little look. Um, what keeps me doing it is that it feels like a potluck every time, you know, it's just like, I don't know what to expect. Exposes me to new products, makes it very um, exciting and creative when it comes to eating my food. Freya, what does what does bin diving, skip dipping, however you call it, what does it look like for you? Like, I'm imagining like goggles on, gloves on, Wellington boots. Like, are the maggots crawling out of corners of the bins? Is it dirty? Are you there fighting off bin chickens? How does it <laughs> how does it actually practically play out for you? Okay, I've had people ask me that, like, do I wear gloves and things? I personally don't. I know some people do. Um, and, yeah, I guess wear some clothes that you don't mind getting a bit of, um, you know, bin juice on them. But um, overall, it's been okay. Just make sure you hold your breath when you go in. I don't want to turn people off, but one time I went into a bin and I saw a rat dying in there, and that that didn't... Um, turn me off but it more upset me <laughs> but that was the one time and I've been doing this for about um over a year now so it's really not that gross Blaze I have to compose myself firstly and foremostly um we we're having a conversation <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you first talked about you know Freya I just couldn't believe my ears and uh, it almost felt like we were doing a Vice episode on you know chartering uh, some unknown <laughs> part of the world and um uh Freya, I'm really fascinated. Um, you know, it's, it sounds like you've had a, a you know a pretty sort of interesting uh, sort of career and upbringing. But when you tell people about bin diving, you know, what is the first immediate reaction? And then, you know, how do you how do you deal with the potential stigma of people saying, you know, why do you do this? Um, and, and and what's your response to that? Um, good question because it is uh, something that I use when I go out. I'm, I'm single, so when I go out on dates, it's a bit of a test question to see how people's values align with mine or their tolerance for something a little bit edgy. But um, people do ask me if it's germy and people ask me if I um, eat meat and seafood and eggs, and I do. Um <laughs> And so far in that whole time, I've not been sick once. So that's been pretty good. I guess um, what comes with doing it is just learning um, skills and tricks of, you know, figuring out what food is edible. So, you know, there's things like the egg floating test. You can put an egg into a glass of water and if it floats, don't eat it. 
basic sniff test ah. with me. Yeah. And, you know, in this COVID era, just make sure you wash your hands after touching it and, and all of that. Um, be safe, be clean. So you said meat and eggs and seafood. What other things are you finding in the bins? So much. Um, my favourite, okay, I won't say the supermarket, but there is a particular bin I go to to get all my random stuff. So the other day I got um, immunity vitamins. I got some hand sanitizer. I've um, Vitamins? Hand sanitizer. Yes. What? Um, People, had to- a few months ago we were fighting over ourselves in the shop and fighting over each other in the shops just to get our hands on hand sanitizer and vitamins and you found them for free. I know, they're chucking them out. I don't know why. Um, but the other day I got some, like a pack of men's briefs and um, I wear them. <laughs> nice. Comfy? Are they comfy? <laughs> they're very comfy. <laughs> Lots of room. <laughs> So you found hand sanitizer, vitamins, you found food, you found briefs. So you do you never need to go shopping? It sounds like you're finding everything. Yeah, I mean, I even find booze in there. The other day um, I just finished off a lot of um, craft beer. So, yes, I sometimes do go out and buy the fancy things like craft beer and truffle oil the other day. I'm fancy. Um, but when I finished that craft beer, I went to the bins like a day or two later. I found the same craft beer in the bin. <laughs> Even beer. Yeah. This is outrageous. It's just an exciting way to um, save money and explore and challenge yourself. Freya, I do have to ask, what's your favourite bin spot? Well, my favourite place to go is very close to me in the inner west. It's about a 15-minute um, bike ride. I try and keep it green. Uh, and it's a grocery store, so I get all my fancy vegetables and pasta from there. That is amazing. Freya, have you ever been caught? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is it legal? Um, it's a grey area. I think even though they've decided to throw it away and discard it, which to me says they don't want it, because it's on their property, it's still theirs. Um, but I've never had anyone threaten to call police on me. I've had people say, can you not do that or can you not take that, whatever. Um, and I just try and be polite about it and say yes or, yeah, my avenue is just to be respectful and compliant. But I, I always get away with it, so it's fine. <laughs> well, Freya, this just leads to more questions. In terms of your own financial life, how much money do you think you've actually saved by dumpster diving? Mm. I was thinking about this the other day. I think um, if I was to be buying only groceries to eat at home every night, that would be costing me $100 a week, I think. Um, and then by for the whole year, it'd be five grand at least. Whoa, that's pretty impressive. And it sounds like you have lots of fun doing it as well. So, what are your other motivations? So you're saving money and you said you like the thrill of it. Is there anything else that really draws you towards the process? Um, yeah, it gets me out of the house. Um, I think as well it uh, just exposes me to other products that I wouldn't normally buy. So I saw um, there was like a packet of 
um, what were they called? Vacuum baked chips. There were wedges and they looked just like wedge potatoes, but you break, you know, like you chew it and it's crispy. I thought that was crazy. So that's, that's on my list of things to buy in future. Vacuum baked. Um, yeah. I was like, what the hell is that? Google. Vacuum baked. <laughs> um, but the good thing as well is um, what I didn't expect is if there's a whole lot of food there. So there, there was a time when I'd be going to one bin in particular and they would throw out their pastries from the day before every night. Um, I would take the whole bag of pastries and because I can't eat it, all by myself and I don't want to, I would take it to work or share it with neighbours and friends and they know that it's discarded food but they're always happy to eat it. So I feel like that's a really nice um, byproduct of it, sharing it with my community around me. You're practically grocery Oprah, just dishing out <laughs> all, <laughs> all of your fines to your friends, family and colleagues. Yeah. I wish I worked with you because I would I would love to benefit from a bag of pastries, although I don't think I'd have the self-control you have and I probably would eat them all myself. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I do notice people do ask the initial question and maybe I'll say, oh, I just have a neighbour who works at Woolies and, you know, you can't. I just can't believe how much they're throwing out. So, you know, I thought I'd bring it into work. And that's, that's all they can ask. They're happy to eat it even though they know it's waste. So... That's that's pretty awesome. I do have some stats from uh, Oz Harvest about food waste in Australia. So mm. do you know the Australian government estimates that food waste costs the Australian economy $20 billion each year? No. So it's not just costing us, it's costing the economy $20 billion. Also, over 5 million tonnes of food ends up as landfill, which is enough to fill 9,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools which mind-blowing, just mind-blowing the amount of waste that, that ends up in, in those bins. But I guess you're doing your part and and, and, helping <laughs> and reducing that. Well, yeah, it's definitely fun to know that, one, I've saved money, two, I had an exciting way of getting that. So I guess it's kind of I feel like I'm hunting my food. Three, um, whatever I'm eating is saved from landfill and further environmental pollution. So. Yeah, it's good all round. So Freya, when it comes to the big shopping centre chains, do you actually think they're throwing out food uh, way too sooner? So do you think they could probably leave it on their shelves for a bit longer or uh, what's your thoughts there? Mm. I do notice some of the food that gets thrown out might have little um, parts of them that's bruised or a little bit of mould which I easily cut off and eat. Um, but I think for them it's really just... Um, Stock turnover. Right. I think it's just, it's part of a big chain, a big supply chain of, you know, incoming stock from the farmers and the other suppliers and the staff that work at the supermarkets who get paid minimum wage. And I know that because I've worked there recently. Um, they just have to follow the process of stock turnover. And it's just a, I guess, you know, they've decided that there's an amount of food an amount of costs that they're happy to write off and it doesn't matter if it means that perfectly good food goes to waste. I wish um, I wish there were more charities or more avenues for this food to be distributed to, but I can understand that maybe for them it seems more work than is necessary because really they are profit-driven. So 
if it costs them money to donate food to charity, it wouldn't really make sense to them. That's a really interesting observation because in Australia we do have Food Bank and we do have Oz Harvest and many other charities that take a lot of this excess food from supermarkets and they do distribute it to those in need. But to see that even though those systems are in place, there's still a failure, there's still something not being met, which is obviously really beneficial for yourself and people like yourself that are jumping into bins and making the most of this opportunity. But it's Mm. also pretty disappointing to see that we are wasting so much food, especially when obviously there's people around the world that can't afford to eat or can't make ends meet like that. Yeah, I've kind of, I see myself as being a little bit opportunistic because I'm not my, I'm myself not making great um, strides to try and prevent this waste. It's more, I just take um, advantage of it and I post it on my Instagram so then other people can see it and also take advantage of it. Um it's too big for someone, just like one person, myself, to try and change the whole supply chain process that they have in pre- in place. So, Freya, I'd imagine you're not alone. How big is the dumpster diving community? Um, you know what's funny? Uh, I've gotten friends into dumpster diving since I've told them about it, and as well, I've met people while I've been dumpster diving and found out that some people that I work with also dumpster dive. So um, I've made friends while I've been at the bin and said hi to them and said, oh, hey, how long have you been doing this? And just now we're friends. One of my friends from work, we sometimes, if we have time over lunch, we'll we'll just say, hey, do you want to go check out the specials aisle, as we call it, and (laughs) go check out the bin? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Freya, final question from me. Halloween's around the corner. What's going to be your costume this Halloween? Oh, oh my God. I haven't thought about that. Halloween's actually my birthday. Um, mm. oh, happy birthday. Happy Halloween birthday. Thank you. Um, maybe I'll just uh, I'll just go as a bag of trash. <laughs> trash oh, bag. <laughs> Freya, I was going to say, if you if you remember uh a, a show on the on the ABC as we were growing up. Um certainly Oscar the Grouch costume might be a fitting, a fitting. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have to include that, but that's that's the only thing I was thinking about. Um yeah it's Freya, I'm curious. So you find a lot of very different things. What has been your most random find or your weirdest find or your best find? I wanna know. Yeah, I think my favourite find has been um, there was a children's toy thrown out in the bin and it was um, a fake, it was like a play supermarket set. So it had like little felt groceries you could get and play money and a fake credit card. And I thought that is so funny that they've chucked that out. (laughs) That's how I get my groceries. That sounds really cute. That's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us, Freya. That was so fascinating and a really out-of-the-box way to save money and also have a positive impact on the environment and really adopt a sustainable lifestyle. If anyone listening wants to check out your Instagram, at Bing Cuisine, thank you so much for joining us, Freya. Thank you so much. It was really fun to chat about it. Thanks, Freya. Dan, what do you think? Do you think it's something you could do? Blaze, to tell you the truth, I am shocked. I never knew this was a thing. 
And I never knew someone like Freya would be interested in doing something like this. But the more I think about it, I mean, she does have a lot of valid points into why she's doing it. Uh, I think that the the area where I, I just would probably get to the point where I've I've got my my dinner from last night coming to to the top of my top of my throat would be just getting in the bed <laughs> for the very first time. I personally don't think I could do it. How about you, Blaze? It's I, could I do it? I'm not sure. It's I think it's really interesting, and I think it's really I it would be really exhilarating, and I do agree with the whole no food waste kind of thing, and obviously saving money is a huge draw card. But yeah, I think I would I would only comfortably do it if I knew where I was going, it was legal and the supermarket was okay with it. I think you've touched on a really good point here, which is are supermarkets doing enough to potentially give away food that, you know, could still be edible and uh, doing more to maybe help people more in need or whether they're uh, they're doing enough. And I think this is a really interesting topic that I think a lot of uh, people are asking themselves these days is a massive movement to sustainability thinking all around. Certainly a big topic for Gen Zs and millennials. And I think a conversation like today with Freya is really going to open up the conversation for a lot more bigger companies to start considering how much they're doing to become more sustainable in terms of food wastage. So, yeah, really great to meet Freya. Now is a good time to jump in and say that the Money Bites podcast and We Money do not condone or encourage any illicit or illegal behaviour. Please be mindful of the laws in the state that you live, as this may be illegal where you are, and we wouldn't want you to break the law or get in trouble. We're simply exploring the many curious ways that certain individuals save money. Last week, we chatted about the first home loan deposit scheme, which is the extra 10,000 places the government announced to help people buying their first home, avoid paying lenders' mortgages, insurance, So they can get a home loan with a deposit as little as 5% instead of 20%. But what about the first homeowner's grant? Can we chat about that? Absolutely, Blaze. Let's do it. All right, great. So, Dan, I did a little bit of research and I've taken a look at the history of the first homeowner's grant. Now, it was introduced on the 1st of July in 2000, so 20 years ago now, by the Howard government. Uh, when they introduced the goods and services tax. So to offset the roll-on effect of this new tax of Aussies buying their first home, the first homeowner grant scheme was launched nationally. Now, the scheme was created to assist first home buyers to enter the market. But as far as I understand it, there's a lot of criteria that you have to meet. And also, although the scheme is national, the eligibility and criteria and benefits you can get vary from state to state. So how is it different across different parts of Australia and what does it mean for you if you're in WA or New South Wales or Tasmania? What do you need to know across the country about the First Homeowners Grant? Blaze, there's a lot of complexity when it comes to the First Homeowners Grant and the eligibility criteria and there's probably a lot to go through on today's podcast that would take up quite a bit of time if we went through all the details. But we've made it easier. If you jump onto wemoney.com.au and have a look at our blog section, you'll be able to find out a breakdown of each individual state. Now, to touch on it on a very high level, depending on where you live, Blaze, the grant differs quite significantly. Uh, If you're living in, say, Western Australia, you can get a grant of up to $10,000. And probably some of the more generous states are, say, Victoria and Taz, where the grant can be upwards of, say, $20,000 to go towards uh, buying a home. I know, it's huge. So I live in WA at the moment, but if I move to Tasmania, I can get double the amount of money. 
That doesn't seem very fair. I know. Tell me about it, Blaze, but not as fair as if you live in ACT. What's why? What's the deal in ACT? Well, ACT have scrapped their first homeowners grant scheme as of the 1st of July 2019, but it's been replaced with a new scheme, which is an income testing threshold, which basically means they're trying to even the playing field when people say earning a lot of money that uh, probably will be incentivized to save more of a deposit as opposed to those who are lower income earners. So, for example, if your income uh, is, say, $160,000 and you have no children, then you won't be eligible for the grant. However, if you do have up to five children and you earn under $176,000 or thereabouts per year, you will be eligible for the specific ACT scheme. Okay, so what's the benefit of the ACT scheme? Is it a grant? So the benefit, Blaze, of living in the ACT and applying for this scheme is that you save a lot of money by not having to pay stamp duty for the purchase of a property, which can be quite expensive depending on how much the property is worth. Sweet. Shackers if you're in the ACT. It sounds awesome. So, Dan, state by state, what is the grant? And what is the main eligibility criteria? Well, Blaze, if, for example, you're living in Western Australia, you'll get $10,000, Victoria, upwards of $20,000, as well as Tasmania, uh, and other states are of a similar amount. But more interestingly, in the ACT, it's actually completely different. Uh, They've got a completely different scheme to incentivize people to buy their new homes, which doesn't actually reflect the value of the property, whether it's new or established. So, Dan... Most states, it's 10000 or up to $20,000, but what's the criteria? Can I buy any house that I like? Does it matter how expensive the house is, where the house is located? What's the deal with that? So, Blaze, I think if people want to find a little bit more detail about the individual concessions for the first homeowners grant, the best place to go is to the government website, firsthome.gov.au and from there they'll be directed to their individual state or territory to find out exactly what the restriction criteria are and how much money they can receive depending on whether you're buying a first home, whether you're building a first home and what that means for you and the first home owners grant. Okay, great. So that website was firsthome.gov.au? That's the one, Blaze. If you're applying for the first home owners grant and say you're moving in with your partner, What happens if they own a home or have owned a home before or they've already taken out the grant for themselves? Does that mean I'm still eligible or no? How does it work? Blaze, I think in most cases uh, you probably will not be eligible uh, if your partner has already taken advantage of a first homeowner's scheme before at some point uh, since it was introduced. Uh, But what we suggest is people check out uh, the website, firsthome.gov.au, to see what that means for your own individual situation. So in most cases, if you have a partner that's owned a home before, you wouldn't be eligible. Why is that? Is they, are they just trying to cap how many people get this or is it a property market thing? How, why is that? Blaze, I think it's to avoid the double dipping in the cases where people might be, you know, potentially looking to rot the scheme. So if you bought your first time, you've avoided either paying stamp duty, concessions on stamp duty, or you've received the first homeowner's grant. I think the government is just trying to catch out people and say, you know, if you've already received the benefit before, maybe you shouldn't receive the benefit again. And maybe it might not cover all situations, but end of the day, I think it's better than nothing. 
I mean, fair enough. They're doing us a favor, giving us the first homeowner's grant. We shouldn't take it for granted is what I'm learning from this. Absolutely, Blaze. So, Dan, for first home buyers, they can access the first home loan deposit scheme, which is great. Depending on their state and their criteria and their eligibility, they could get the first home owner's grant as well. Now, when it comes to buying your first home, what other fees or what are the other considerations you need to make that will cost you money when you're buying your first house? Blaze, as they say, there's only there's only a few things that are true in life. Death and taxes, as they say. So the government's <laughs> going to tax you to death. And there's other fees that first-time buyers are more likely to have to pay. So one of the things that people should look into is, say, look into the land tax. Land tax may be different depending on what state you live in. Uh, you also have stamp duty considerations uh, that differ quite wildly depending on what state you live in. And then, of course, there's another type of duty or tax or the uh, transfer duty that people have to pay when they buy properties in particular states. So... There's probably a lot of fees and charges that people need to look into, not just to do with, say, their buying experience of, you know, buying the house, getting a home loan, getting the first homeowner's grant. There's a lot of government gotchas in that process as well that people have to look into and see what the total costs are. Do you just list three things, the land tax, the stamp duty and the transfer duty? That's like the old saying, take two steps forward and one step back. They're like, we'll give you two grants but you do still have to pay these three taxes. <laughs> I, I know, Blaze. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think we'd like to see some further simplification of a lot of these schemes and grants where, you know, it's the classic case of uh, the, the left hand stealing from the right hand. And really, the confusion isn't really helping anyone. So I totally agree. So, Dan, I know all about the first home owner's grant now, know about the first home loan deposit scheme, which is great. But I want to know, is now a good time to buy? And the reason I ask is because I have several friends who saved up a nice chunk of money to go traveling this year. Obviously, COVID has thrown a spanner in the works and they're not traveling anywhere or very far at all. So now these friends of mine, they're looking at putting their travel money down as a deposit for a house. So Dan, the big question, is now a good time to buy? Blaze, it is all relative. Uh, if you're a person that has home ownership as one of your primary goals in life right now, if you look at it from the dimension of saying, all right, what's the interest rate that you're going to be paying on a mortgage? That is at all-time record lows uh, with the RBA setting the cash rate at 0.25%. And a lot of people right now are probably looking at a mortgage of anywhere between 25 to 3% which if you compare that only of, say, you know, almost 10 years ago where rates were at 4.5%, 5%, it's a significantly cheaper time to borrow. But there is a double-edged sword, Blows. With lower interest rates, what that basically means is that when money becomes more cheaper or interest rates become lower, typically what you see is that more people getting into the market because they can borrow more and afford more on a loan. And what that does is push up prices so whilst you're paying a low mortgage rate, what you're probably paying for is a really high price of property. So what does it mean in terms of, is it a good time to buy? Well, really, if you think about home, a home is going to be a place where you, your family live in for a very long time. You know, a, a mortgage now is typically 25 to 30 years. And depending on how long you have your home for, 
Yeah, it's a very long time. And so there almost isn't a good answer. It all depends on your own situation about where you see yourself in the next, say, 10 to 15 years. If it's going to be one of those forever homes, it doesn't really matter because we're going to be paying one way or the other. We're either going to be paying for an increased property price with lower mortgage repayments or higher mortgage repayments, but a lower property price. So it almost doesn't matter when you buy, if it's something that you're looking to uh, hold for a very long time. So the payoff of having all these schemes and benefits in place that can help first home buyers enter the market at the moment, the the opportunity cost is that the house, because everything's so cheap and it is so easy to buy at the moment, house prices are going up. So pros and cons. Well, Blaze, the, the, the pros are is that if you want to get into a home right now and if you've got good stable employment and you can meet the minimum deposit requirements, you can get onto the property ladder and establish yourself and start getting into a home. I think the only word of caution would be is that people don't overextend themselves. So as a con, I would say that if, it, if you can afford a home, make sure it's something that you can afford. You should also bake in a sensitivity. Say, for example, if there's any particular changes to your own individual circumstance, i.e. if you lose your job, can you afford to make your mortgage repayments and also uh, sustain your household for, say, you know, six months or 12 months' time? Because what you're seeing right now is that a lot of young people, they're really getting themselves up to their eyeballs in debt buying properties in really expensive locations. But if anything happened to their own situations to do with their employment or their income, they could be left uh, really holding the bag of a really high mortgage and having a lot of difficulty in making those repayments. So approach with caution. That would certainly be one con to look out for as you're navigating uh, getting onto the property ladder. Okay, Dan. So lots of pros and cons, as always, with everything in life. Um, I guess the main takeaway from this is do your homework. Property ownership is one of your goals. Definitely do some research before you commit to anything and don't overextend yourself. So as tempting as a helipad and a lap pool is, (laughs) it may not be the right (laughs) choice if it's not a sustainable one for you. That's it, Blaze. Thanks for joining us on another week of Money Bites. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Store. We'll catch you next time. See you later.